we then started thinking about, well, what's this connection? Why do you always find this connection between disrupted sleep and mental health? And that built a model, which was that um, because the sleep and circadian systems draw from all the brain neurotransmitter systems and multiple brain structures, at some level, the sleep systems and the mental health systems will overlap within the brain. So if there's a change in a pattern of neurotransmitter, brain neurotransmitter, that predisposes you to a mental health state, it's going to have an impact upon sleep at some level. And what we were able to do is link genes that have been linked to the clock and sleep to mental health, and genes that have been originally linked to mental health were linked to the clock and sleep system. So there was empirical evidence for that mechanistic overlap within the brain. You know, so there is a hereditary element to developing um, uh, mental health conditions um, and, and in parallel with sleep problems. If we can partially stabilize sleep-wake systems, we should be able to reduce the severity of mental health. And working with my friends in psychiatry in Oxford, and notably Dan Freeman, we were able to do that. People showing hallucinatory, experience, uh, hallucinatory experiences and paranoia uh, with insomnia, we were able to reduce the insomnia and reduce the paranoia and hallucinatory experiences, showing that intimate relationship between the two. And the exciting thing is we don't have much in our arsenal to deal with mental health other than 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 sort of a bunch of, of, of drugs which sometimes work and sometimes don't. Um, but if we can think of stabilizing the sleep-wake systems, we've got a new way to uh, attack some of the problems associated with mental health problems. So many years ago, we used to do competitive yoga. And I know that's quite strange, the idea of, of competitive yoga. But coming from competitive rugby yoga, it was hard to lose that competitive edge. So Dave one time was able to do Marie Chasna C. Then I was able to do it. Then we were able to do Marie Chasna D. And then we managed to sit in full lotus. And anyone who kind of forces it or rushes it can often develop knee problems. And particularly as a rugby player, we never had flexible hips. So we used to sit in full lotus till our knees literally, I don't think they quite popped, but we definitely had bad knees for a good number of years to the case where Stephen at one stage nearly, he, he had booked an operation, but actually cancelled it. And back about five years ago, a friend, Tony Riddle, he said, lads, what are you doing wearing those cushioned big shoes? What are you doing? They've a narrow toe box. You're, you're, Actual posture starts with your feet. And he gave us pairs of Vivo barefoot shoes. We didn't know anything about them. Didn't and know what the hell a toe box didn't, was. Didn't know where we were. But anyway, we've worn them for five years. We've had no knee problems since it. Like really, I can't believe how incredible it's been for improving our own postures and our own movement. And, and that, again, that, this is an anecdotal story. This isn't to say by wearing these shoes, you're going to fix your knees. But in our experience, it really helped our overall relationship with our body and how it connects to the earth. And really Tony explained to us back when he first gave it to us that like when you do wear a cushion sole, you are actually, you're, you're taking away a lot of the information. We've got the same amount of nerve endings in our feet as we do in our hands. And there's a huge amount of information and muscle building that happens when our feet. And obviously like if you think about it, our knees and our hips and our spine are stacked on top of our feet. So if we get our foundation right, a bit like a house, if you've got a good solid foundation, it's a lot easier to get the walls straight and get the roof upright. Whereas if your foundation is odd and Stephen can explain to attest to this, with his treehouse building when he gets his base wrong it was a lot harder to build the walls because nothing was level and then your roof certainly wasn't level so no, it's the tree, you know, your treehouse is good so it's charming, I'm not having a jab it's charming there. and wonky but, it, but even I always like this idea so 
So if, say, you're jumping on a trampoline, the trampoline itself kind of gives, it it bounces in relationship to you. Versus if you're jumping on a wooden floor, you have to be soft and flexible because the floor is really hard. And similarly, if you wear a cushion shoe, when you jump up and down or run in a cushion shoe, it's the cushion that absorbs the impact. Versus if you're wearing a, a minimal or barefoot shoe, when you run it, it's actually your body has to be more softer. So we found in, in the case of using barefoot shoes that our bodies are typically softer. So anyway, we've been wearing Vivo Barefoots for five years. Fantastic shoes. They're a regenerative shoe company. They use all sustainable ingredients. They're a B Corp company. So ingredients in their shoes. Oh, materials. Sorry, Stephen. Uh, They're really class. Our kids wear them. Our wives wear them. They're really, really, I, I couldn't say enough good about them. They've very generously offered a 20% discount for anyone that wants to try them. They've given a 100-day free trial, so you can get, send them back after 100 days. All you got to do is use the code HAPPYPAIR20 at the wherever you put the code in. Just go to VivoBarefoot.com. They've got a range of casual shoes, men's shoes, women's shoes, it's kids' really cool. shoes. I love my hiking ones. I wear them down the farm. Yeah. So anyway, if you're interested, fantastic shoes. Couldn't recommend them more. Go to VivoBarefoot.com and the code is HAPPYPAIR20 for 20% off. Welcome to Happy Pair Podcast. Steve here. Dave here. Sarah here. How's it going? Hope you're well. Thanks for your attention. We're really grateful. Yeah, so uh, on the Happy Pair Podcast, we explore all things health, happiness, curiosity, how to be better, happier, more content, more, I think to have a better relationship with yourself is super important and with the planet, the whole thing starts. And to be so, more conscious or lit humans. Good effort at an intro there, Steve. Well, we have an Not eclectic bad. group of bunch of people that we have on the yeah, podcast. Yeah. And also we were talking about the other week how we should start uh, bringing in people's feedback. Oh yeah. 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 If anyone's. Now, I, I, we have loads of random one, but um, I'll, so I'll just mention ones from Elle. Oh, thanks for your feedback. Yeah. Keep, keep sharing it. This you is see people share them excited. nicely on, um, you know, on social media. So like we get comments under our posts whenever we put it up and whatnot. But it'd be great if, um, yeah, if people want to actively actually send us some uh, direct messages. Oh, yeah, we'd appreciate yeah. that. But anyway, we've got Yvonne and Anastasia because it's quite hard sometimes from uh, Instagram because, uh, you know, people have code names. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. So I can tell you your names, but uh, you probably won't. Uh, nobody will know who it is. Um, but they were just saying that it was really nice to see the real L and that they found a really inspiring, uh, which they were surprised to find. I suppose, you know, when you think of a, people just think of someone called a supermodel. They're not really thinking of the depth of the person's soul really that yeah, much. Yeah, well, I think Elle's incredible that she really had experienced the highs and the lows and everything in between and was yeah. really, you know, comfortable in herself to talk about it. Yeah, and I think that with the experience of life that you literally get cracked open for more light to come in and you can be more raw and honest and she was just so raw and honest. And Also, it's so interesting with the celebrities that come from that era where there was such a distance between us and them, like she describes, where nowadays we all... The closeness. Yeah, it's closeness that people are into, whereas then it's like they were like gods. And also if you had that, if you had that pushed upon you, that then your ego would have probably kind of been, oh, well, I'm not mingling with the masses and it would have made you afraid of people nearly. So I can imagine it was really alienating and quite lonely. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas nowadays, I think it's the more you can forge that relationship with... I think maybe, maybe we could set up an email address like the Happy Pair Podcast at thehappypair.ie and people could send or podcast at thehappypair.ie and people could send in some feedback or so some suggestions or podcast things. feedback at thehappypair.ie that's what I was hoping for um, but thanks Stephen you're thinking ahead of the game I, already I, I could feel it off the ether yeah here. you could feel it off me off your field but it's funny because like I was looking at back at people's uh, responses on Instagram posts and the one we did for Elle 
like I spent and this I just reflect on myself I spent such a ridiculous amount of time on getting that shot of you guys jumping into the water and jumping out <laughs> and out I'm like no one gives a shit about it and I'm like no. what does it say about myself that I was like you know when you, you get so like you have to do something you have to get something right and you, you're not doing it for anyone else but yourself but you can't stop you don't want to do anything else but that thing kind it's of like, like picking a scab like when you're or, picking a or scab if you or get a necklace that's all tangled up like i'll nearly miss a flight just to untangle it because i need to finish I, was right. this, I need to finish this thing like wow. do you ever get anything no, like that never you just give up <laughs> no. oh definitely yeah, yeah that kind of stuff no very rarely oh, i get so obsessive and i don't give a shit what anything else is going on around me and i just need to finish this one thing but only, only can, when I'm, I'm tired only when i'm tired when i'm like by and large, when like I'm full of energy, I'm out and I'm social. But when I'm tired, I get slightly neurotic. I yeah. like that's when I love things tidy and organized and very particular about things. Yeah, yeah. it doesn't happen very often. Though. No, but it does very rarely. Times like when, you know, half an hour a year or something. But um, um, on, on another note, I got given uh, like about three weeks ago. We were over in Devon, and there was some lovely people came to meet us in the morning. Sarah had written a book and wanted us to kind of taste some of her stuff, and then she brought her three of her friends, and one of them has a stone shop, like a crystal and stone shop. And the lady... She's in Totnes, Yeah, it? she was 18. She was so lovely. I can't remember her name. She had a cool name. Cool name anyway. But she gave me a stone and it was called... I think this fluoride. is called Fluoride. And I've had it in my pocket since then. And it's a shiny kind of magical rock. And I hold it and play with it and I fidget with it. And it's really, really cool. But I think and the I funnest bit is like, you'll hand it to someone, do you want to rub my rock? No, but I don't and say... And then you, you have want... a conversation. No, but it. I don't even say that. I say, would you like uh, hold my rock there and make a wish? Like, this is a magic rock. It's got loads of cool powers. It's a good conversation. And people, do, people do hold it and they, and they make a wish. And I do, I do think it will I, I think through. that's also the thing about life. When you can have that kind of silliness of life, it can bring out the real magic. Like, remember when we were in London, as we said recently, and you, you saw a priest who went, Sir, will you bless me? And it was just like, what the of hell? Course and then, and then you got blessed and you ran off going, hey, I'm blessed. But people are way more open to the kind of woo-woos of life. You yeah, know, yeah, and yeah. it's like, let me touch your soft, magical rock. You're like, I see, okay. look, now Sarah's holding and, and petting my magic <laughs> well, I rock. Have to, and when Shawnee's I'm switching you. for a go now yeah. too. <laughs> I can see I mean, you there. <laughs> but you know, if someone said to you, like, if you touch that rock, you will like special things will happen to you. You can't not touch it, even if you don't believe. You're like, just just in the off chance. Um, like. But I, I was gonna also add an, another thing about um, feedback on podcasts was that loads of people commenting on Charles Dowding and um, eating soil, which oh, I thought no, was yeah. interesting. And yeah, I thought for anyone out there, if um, if they could let us know from like any of our podcasts, did any like certain things like really. You know, is there anything that really touched them that they've continued? Have they changed doing? the lifestyle yeah. practice? Like they suddenly started adding well, like, two tablespoons of soil into their smoothie every morning, or just no, not like that? Maybe is a bit extreme, but like the fact that like you know, loads of people are on that were saying like, oh yeah, I don't, I, I now like don't wash my veg Veggie's straight after. Much, yeah. I just brush off the mud if there is any. Well, I certainly mean, this the is organic one. Veg. I've definitely met people who've changed their breathing and have texted me or friends who've kind of gone, what tape do you use? Can I get some tape? You know, to take their mouth you know for breathing yeah. through their nose as for sleeping but i become that annoying person too like i comment on people you you guys do it to me all the time which i think is great but i comment to people all the time like i'm like oh you're breathing a lot through your mouth there <gasps> are you stressed what's going on breathe more, more through your yeah, nose but yeah. anyway so if you've listened to any of our other podcasts um and listen to this one please give us some feedback on uh podcast or er, uh podcast feedback at thehappypair.ie and we'll also create an alias just podcast at thehappypair just if you can't remember the feedback thing and that'll work too brilliant well I was hoping yeah. I might be able to use that for something else at some point in my life Stevie <laughs> oh, <are> <laughs> okay sorry we can okay. use the alias okay okay so 
One area of health that we've been super interested in that hasn't necessarily got all the attention is sleep. And this isn't just sleep. This is about your circadian rhythm, which is an internal 24-hour clock. And today we've got an incredible man, like so interesting. This is such a learned, inspired man that's written more than 100 scientific papers. He's published lots of different books on the area and won loads of different awards on it. His name is Russell Foster. He is a British professor of circadian neuroscience, the director of the Nuffield Laboratory of Ophthalmology, and the head of well Sleep done. and Circadian Neuroscience Institute. He's also a Nicholas Curty Senior Fellow at Brasenos College at the University of Oxford. Fellow. To be a fellow. Hello, fellow. His group are credited with many key contributions to the discovery of lots of interesting things, which he's going to talk about. And he really is an amazing man, but he's got such a relatable, the way he talks is so relatable and so applicable and practical. So I certainly have got so much out of this man and I think you're really going to enjoy it and get so much from it. So without further ado, we give you the wonderful Russell Foster. Um, the first, okay, I'll push that. Yeah, I mean, we've understood all, all preclinical work, all the basic science stuff is first worked out in a mouse. And then we, it, it usually applies perfectly to humans. Even the fact that we are diurnal, day-active animals, and mice are nocturnal, um, night-active. Uh, the biology is still fundamentally the same. But the animal I think is the most intriguing and curious is something called um, Sphenodon or Tuatara, which is a lizard from New Zealand. It doesn't, it's not related to normal lizards. It represents this evolutionary lineage and these things are just so cool they have they have actually a, a hole they have a parietal eye a third eye which we don't really understand what it does but it's 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 very similar to it's a small version of the lateral eyes and i was lucky enough to go to new zealand a few years ago and i was taken to see these things wild and they are just so cool i was stroking the head of this this thing and the chap said to me yeah, that's fine. But if they bite, they they have this ability to saw with their jaws. He said, so, do you know, I, I keep your finger away from that end of the animal. <laughs> My word. So they've actually got, because you know the way third eye, like in spirituality, you'll hear like people will go, oh, well, just connect to your third eye. And it's go, well, I've only got two eyes. Like, where's my third one? And they'll say it's between your head and it's up in your forehead. Yeah. And all that kind of stuff. And this animal has... Like actually, an actual, and well, when you say a, when you say you said it was some type of an eye, I didn't quite understand. It was like a lateral eye. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So it's like, but that's what's so weird about mammals, in that um, we have no weird photoreceptors. I mean, the reptiles, the birds, they have photoreceptors not only in the eyes but in the pineal. There are even light sensors within the brain, and mammals are completely different. Uh, it looks like we've lost them because our entire ancestry was from nocturnal animals. Um, and we've lost all those extra, extra retinal photoreceptors and only have uh, receptors in our eye. But actually, some of the work that we've done has shown that we not only have visual cells in our eyes, but we have these weird non-visual photoreceptors in the eye, which are used for the regulation of alertness and the biological clock and a whole bunch of other things. So and anyway. That, and yeah, that's, that's been a massive field of your work, really. You know, when you certainly the bits when we've been doing research is really like that area of your understanding. Like, because, OK, maybe let's start back at the very top and kind of go, OK, circadian rhythm, 
how, you know, that's, that's been the piece that's been a huge component to your work. And that word, how I understand it is that it's our internal 24 hour clock or circa around DM day, circadian rhythm or whatever. So it's, it's, it's understanding that and its purposes within our health and well-being in every aspect of it, really. I mean, I got into this, you know, from that zoology background, I wanted to understand how clocks are regulated by the light dark cycle. We have this internal timer, which is fine tuning every aspect of our biology to the 24 hour rotation of the earth, the light dark cycle. Um, And the assumption was, well, we're just using our visual system to regulate the clock. And that never made any sense to me, particularly going back to my zoological roots, because other animals do it differently. They have these weird photoreceptors that are used to regulate internal time. So the conceptual leap for me of proposing that there may be a weird photoreceptor, but it's in the eye, wasn't so huge because I was used to thinking of weird photoreceptors in birds and reptiles and fish and amphibians. Um, and, And so people who'd always worked on vision um, and 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 the human eye all their lives just just didn't get it because they haven't been thinking about it. They've been thinking about it in terms of vision and not the other function of a photoreceptor, which is to regulate uh, uh, internal clocks and other processes to the external world. Yeah, right. when you first came out, of it, I remember hear, hearing when you first came out of it, people thought what you were saying was preposterous. The idea that even when our uh, even when people have you know, difficulty seeing, they can still have this photoreceptor and the ability to yeah. set their circadian rhythm due well, to the light receptors. That's what's so, I think, amazing. I mean, you, you, and again, we go back to mice. We've, we first started trying to work this out in mice. Mice with hereditary retinal disorders, whereby the visual cells, the rods and cones, had broken down um, as a result of genetic mutations. And so they were visually blind. And yet when we tested these animals, and it was very simple, we just put them in a running wheel, linked up to a computer, put them under a light dark cycle. And what we expected was that the clock would drift through time. But no, it was beautifully aligned to the light dark cycle. And when we cover the eyes, this ability went. So that, you know, kind of early on nailed the fact that there's got to be something else in the eye. Um, But I remember, you know, proposing this, back in the 90s and gave a talk um, in the States and somebody at the back stood up and and I thought they were going to ask a question and they just said, bullshit, and walked out. Um, And, you know, they said, uh, well, do you you know the arrogance of this young pup? We've been studying the eye for 150 years. Do you really think we've, the entire scientific community has missed the fact that there's another light sensor within the eye? And of course, you know, young, full of full of um, confidence said well yeah i mean i think you're wrong and i'm right and it took a decade to do it but but eventually got there you got to prove that you were right very cool it it is kind of a nice sensation um yeah particularly when there was such opposition um i'm not gloating but i have to say it, it felt quite good particularly but it was very nice the people that actually were so critical were the ones that were the first to give me an actually an award saying you know congratulations well done we now believe you <laughs> wow and it was really to understand that like our so when you say photoreceptor you're talking about a light receptor, a light photo, receptor. meaning light or whatever and and i guess it's that there's our body's circadian rhythm so our light dark kind of experience is really predicated by a some type of gene you find some kind of a gene in our eye that's independent to the typical normal rods and cone receptors yeah i mean there was a there's a separate cell 
And so it's actually based upon the ganglion cells in the retina. Now, these are the cells, sort of the last layer of the retina, whose processes, whose axons leave the eye and form the optic nerve. And one out of every hundred of those ganglion cells has the capacity to detect light. It's got its own light-sensitive mole light molecule or photopigment. Um, yeah, and it's maximally sensitive in the, in the blue part of the spectrum. So yeah, that was, um, that was our great understanding. And now what we're trying to do is understand how those really cool photoreceptors interact with the clock directly. Now, in, in, in 2017, you know, the Nobel Prize was given to the three chaps who discovered how the clock works in the fruit fly, in Drosophila, another model organism, which has been really helpful in trying to understand basic biology. And, and, and um, essentially what they discovered is there's a bunch of genes which are turned on, they make a bunch of proteins, and those proteins form a complex, move into the nucleus of the cell and turn their own genes off. Those proteins are then broken down and then the whole cycle uh, repeats itself. So you have a 24 hour oscillation. Um, and that's the heart of the clock. And our you know, work over the past most recent years has been, well, okay, great, you've got this clock ticking away. But how, at a molecular level, is it adjusted to the outside world in the light-dark cycle? And that's been so cool. Wow. And, and so, so in essence, like the, the main way how we set our circadian rhythm, our 24-hour cycle, is our relationship to light and dark. So that's the kind yeah. of context of all this is that, yeah. that this is, many people wonder how is their, their circadian rhythm set? Like say they're kind of someone who's not sure if they're kind of a, a, someone who gets up early or they're not sure if someone that's predisposed to, to stay up late. One of the main ways that you can kind of almost reset your circadian rhythm is to see morning light. Is yeah, that... That, that's a really good point, because, in fact, we just talked about light as setting the clock. But but actually, it's when you see that light that's so important. So morning light tends to advance the clock, makes us get up earlier, whereas dusk light delays the clock, makes us get up later. Now, we did a study a few years ago on university students around the world. And, you know, there are morning types and evening types. And what we showed is that. The evening types, those that like to get up late and go to bed late, are, get, are missing the morning light, which would make them get up earlier, and only seeing the evening light, which would make them get up later. So part of the issue of your chronotype, what makes you a morning person or an evening person, is when you see light, which is, which is really interesting because it means that if you are a late type and you need to get up early, you can set the alarm clock, get out there, see morning light and it'll shove your clock forward a bit in time and make it easier to get up yes so, so, so it's, it's almost like it, it's almost like the relationship between nature and nurture how that we have these predisposed chronotypes i think you said 65 percent of us are in the middle 25 percent yeah. of us are are kind of late night and it's only 15 percent of us are the early hours yes but within that as with nature and nurture there's an ability to kind of move a bit. absolutely now there's genes and there are and it's and, and some of those clock genes have been identified with tiny changes and they have been linked to, to morningness or eveningness and so you know part, part of the you know by their contribution to our genes our parents are still telling us when to get up and when to go to bed um but uh it's also um where, how old we are so from the age of 10 there's a tendency to want to go to bed later and later and later and then in our late teens early 20s we start to go to bed earlier but it's a slow decline into more morningness by the time we're in our late 50s early 60s we're getting up and going to bed at about the time we got up and went to bed when we were 10 but the difference is about two hours 
So, you know, people in their late teens, early 20s want to go to bed about two hours later uh, than people in their, in, their, in their late 50s, early 60s. So you've got the genes, you've got hormonal changes, and that sharp rise follows the changes in, in, in the hormones associated with puberty. So estrogen uh, in women and testosterone in men. Um, and then, of course, when you see light and then you can add social factors. So whether you're staying up all night doing social media, that will also shift your, your timing as well. So, yeah. But but why do we have a clock? And that's what I, we've jumped in right in the right in the front end of the clock. I mean, it's so important to to realize that what our biology needs is the right stuff, the right concentration to the delivered to the right tissues at the right time of day. And it's this sort of central organization of the circadian system, the biological clock that provides that temporal structure. And if we don't get it, then everything falls apart, including our sleep-wake cycles, our ability to repair tissues, our, 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 our processing of information, um, our, 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 the way that we metabolize food. Um, all immune responses all get profoundly uh, uh, disrupted uh, if we're not getting um, that whole beautiful alignment of the clock with the outside world. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's critically important. So, so, OK, so so even just just so I understand it and maybe other people, because we've I'm, I've been very interested in this for quite a while. So we're, we're believed that we need to sleep. You know, the average people say is seven to eight hours, but it's somewhere between six and ten hours or whatever. Yeah. And this is this is the sleep cycle where a lot of the rest, restore, the healing, the storing of memories. There's, you know, like modern culture has really kind of over the last kind of five or ten years, sleep has been kind of it's moving more into the mainstream and becoming, you know, a really people are really respecting it. Whereas back 20 years ago, it was kind of, you know, it was macho to kind of go sleep. We could get away with less sleep. Yeah. And our our 24-hour circadian rhythm really is is our wake and sleep cycle. And within this kind of cycle, there's so many different responses triggered and so many health aspects within this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, essentially... Part of the sleep-wake cycle is 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 linked to our circadian, our 24-hour circadian biology. So, so the, the the flip from consciousness to sleep involves a realignment of all the brain neurotransmitter systems. I mean, it's just you know, ev- everyone is changing in that flip-flop. Um, and it involves an interaction of multiple brain structures, you know, the hindbrain, the midbrain, the cortex, all interacting to get those two different states. And that's timed by the clock. The clock essentially is time stamping. Now is the appropriate time to be awake. Now is the appropriate time to be awake. But there's another timer, which is kind of the intuitive part about sort of sleep, which is the longer you've been awake, the greater the need for sleep. Um, and so ideally, under normal circumstances, this sort of high sleep pressure towards the end of the day and the clock should be working together to say, yep, now is the right time to go to sleep. That gets completely um, uh, uncoupled and screwed up in night shift workers because night shift workers don't shift their clock with the demands of working at night. So so during during the night when the clock is saying, you should be asleep. The entire biology is trying to drive a night shift work of sleep. So the only way of over over sort of um, of coping is turning on the, uh, the 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 stress axis to override that sort of endogenous biology. So after the night shift, the the the, the individual goes home. 
they're chronically tired. The sleep pressure is huge. But the biological clock is saying, hang on, no, it's daytime. You should be awake. So the quality of sleep that the night shift worker gets during the day is always impaired. And many get less than five hours sleep uh, out of every 24 because of that mismatch between the sleep pressure and the clock saying you should be awake. And that's the great problem. That's the great challenge of night shift work. But, yeah. but the other point that you made, and, and I think is really important to emphasize, is that um, we've been screamed at for five, 10 years now. Um, about the importance of sleep. And, and absolutely, that's correct. But we've also been screamed at um, by the sort of the sergeant majors saying, you've got to have eight hours. You've got to have uninterrupted sleep. And you've got to do this and you've got to do that. And that's nonsense. Because what's very clear is that we're all very different. So as you said, sleep duration from six hours to 10 to maybe even 11 hours is in the healthy range. One shouldn't worry about it. Sleep timing is different. And the key thing for each of us is to realize that one shoe size does not fit all. And we need to work out what works best for us and then defend those behaviors um, as we age um, and as we're different from other people. So, so, it, so sleep is immensely dynamic. And there's lots of stuff we can do to optimize our sleep. And, and I loved, uh, I heard you speak about that. Many people are caught up with the idea that I go to sleep and I don't wake up. And if I wake up, I'm wrecked. Whereas I, I thought it was hilarious how you were talking about um, where often people wake up at least once or even twice a night. And back in kind of the Victorian era, it was the best time to have sex was after your first sleep and before your second sleep. Because yeah. everyone woke up in the middle of the night. Because even, even a friend who works with us, Dennis, he gets up every night, he's a cigarette and a cup of tea and then goes back for a second sleep. And when I yeah. heard that, I was like, that's crazy. But like yeah. hearing you talk about that, I, I think you had a fancy word like buy something or try something or multi yeah, yeah, yeah. Poly something. There's some fancy word for yeah. the amount of times you wake up it's biphasic and polyphasic sleep and and you know um uh, there's a there's a fantastic chap who i was chatting to last week who's in the states um roger eckert um and he went through historical records and kept on finding this first sleep second sleep sort of and and, and, and nobody really understood quite what it meant and he digged up, dug a bit deeper and then it was very clear that human sleep patterns were very different. That is a great example where the social sciences have informed the, the, the you know, neuroscience because then um, uh, other people try to replicate this in the lab. So taking you know, people like you and I put into, a, into the lab, 12 hours of light, 12 hours of darkness, the sleep episode expanded and became polyphasic uh, and biphasic. So, so going to sleep, waking up, going to sleep, waking up, and that can happen two or three times uh, throughout the night. And that's what you also find in societies today without electric light. So the problem is most people don't know this. And so they wake up in the middle of the night, think, oh my God, that's it. I'm never gonna get back to sleep again. You know, start, start getting anxious and, you know, starting to do emails and all the rest of it. And in fact, it's perfectly normal. Stay calm, do whatever keeps you relaxed, and you'll go back to sleep. I think that's such an empowering message because with all this kind of focus on sleep, there's also a certain proportion of people that have performance anxiety. And I'm not talking yes. about sex. I'm talking about sleep, like actual kind of getting stressed about it. And there's certainly friends who I know 
who get stressed, like they really do. They get stressed and believe, you know, I woke up twice during the night, like I had two peas. Oh my God, I didn't get a full block. I'm exhausted. And like, and that's common knowledge. And I think what you're saying is so empowering, kind of saying that, you know, we can wake up many times during the night. It's not one size all. It's anywhere between six and 10 hours. And how do people know? Like, what is your message to people to kind of say, in terms of getting enough sleep? Because obviously there's a dosage, you know, in terms of sleep and you've got a very inclusive perspective on it. I mean, the, the, so, so how do you know if you're not getting enough sleep? The first thing is, uh, are you not feeling able to function optimally during the day? I mean, that's sort of kind of a straightforward one. But but other ones like, um, do you need an alarm clock to wake you up in the morning or somebody to get you out of bed? Does it take you a long time to wake up? Do you feel sort of sluggish? Do you need caffeinated drinks, lots of coffee to keep you going throughout the day? Do you crave a nap? Um, and on free days, or indeed holidays, do you find that you then massively oversleep, trying to make up for the for the lack of sleep that you've had um, uh, during the week? And basically, um, uh, also, I think you need to listen to your friends and colleagues. Are you? Uh, do they report that you become a bit more impulsive, a bit more irritable, less considerate, more less empathetic? And and these are these are the consequences of not getting enough sleep. And so it's listening to our bodies. Um, and listen to them carefully, because, of course, the tired brain can delude itself that it's fine. The tired brain is so tired, it can't detect how tired it is. And, you know, and this was first shown in, in cab taxi drivers. And they were asked, you know, how do you cope on the night shift? They said, no problem. Fine. It's great. Um, and then when tested in the lab, their ability, their reaction times, their cognitive abilities was really awful. Um, so you do have to listen to yourself carefully, but also the uh, other people as well. Um, I, yeah. I think that's really inclusive. And and on that topic, you mentioned alarm clock, and that's something that like there's a perfect nature nurture test going on here. I set an alarm most and we're, mornings. And we're obviously identical twins that are genetically 99.9% recurring identical. We're mirror twins. So there really is a good challenge here. And, and I, I, I kind of generally, like we swim in the, su- in the sea every day at sunrise. And typically in the, in the, the, the peak of summer, sunrise is at 4.50 a.m. So generally then I'll set an alarm for around 4.40 to get up 10 minutes just to get ready to walk down to the beach. Dave doesn't set an alarm and he typically shows up around 5.30 down at the beach after we're standing having a cup of tea. Obviously, neither is right or wrong and you love both twins equally. But on the topic of alarm clocks, I just wonder what, what's, what's kind of the science on that and what, what is the ideal? Well, and um, which twin is right? some really interesting. <laughs> Many people will say I wake up just before the alarm clock goes off, um, which I think is very cool. And that we think is... Is the biology our biology using using the clock to anticipate a predictable event in the environment? Now, again, going back to my zoology roots, what bees will do is visit specific flowers where the petals have opened and the nectaries are are, are full. And what the what flowers do is open their petals and fill up the nectaries at specific times of the day. And what that does is encourage bees to pollinate the same sort of flower at the same, you know, at the same time. So, so it's good, good for cross-pollination. But, but bees will use their circadian clock to identify and anticipate particular um, uh, flowers at particular times of day. Um, and it's thought that we have the capability of using our clock, again, to predict 
um, uh, a regular event within the alarm uh, within the environment. So if your alarm clock goes off at the same time every day, many of us will wake in advance of that of that time, which is which is really I think so cool. Yeah. Mm. So yeah. and ideally speaking. In an ideal world, given that, say, we, we get our up sleep, the weather's great, we love our work, where marriages are perfect, it's bliss. Ideally, we wouldn't use an alarm clock, I'm guessing, in terms of ideal sleep. Exactly. Um, so uh, you should really wake fully refreshed from what's called REM sleep or rapid eye movement sleep. And it's very interesting. The and, and it's REM sleep as opposed to non-REM sleep. You go through these cycles. Non-REM has sort of three stages going deeper and deeper into sleep and deep sleep is associated with memory consolidation the processing of information whereas going into REM sleep is is associated with the processing of emotional responses now it's a bit hand wavy we don't fully understand what these different stages of sleep are for but broadly speaking I think there's consensus on that but we wake at the end of, of the sleep episode from REM sleep um, and that's why those people that wake naturally tend to remember their dreams, because that's where we have our most vivid and complicated dreams. So if you are one of those people that remembers their dreams, chances are you're waking up naturally from REM sleep. Mm. Oh, I love that. I certainly found it for years. I used to set my alarm clock and it was only during, I'd say it was the last kind of three or four years, probably during COVID really, I stopped setting an alarm completely because I realized, well, why the heck am I getting up for it? There's nothing I'm getting up for at five o'clock or half five. And I've certainly found it being a much nicer way that there's no irriting noise or beeping noise. Yeah. And my wife is very grateful for it too. So certainly in my own experience, it's been a great one. But uh, but on the topic of alarm clocks, we all, I, I, I think I heard you talk about that. We all have a clock almost within every cell of our body. And that many of us, you know, I think humans were so... The technology within us is phenomenal and we almost dumb ourselves down like me carrying this watch here that measures my sleep, measures my heart rate, like that I have to almost logically, rationally understand it. But so much of, so much of this is intuitively happening, happening. We're just so disconnected. Yeah. Now, so, so, so we talked about the eye regulating the, the, the master clock in the brain. But what we didn't go on to say is that that's, that's how we thought it happened for decades. Eye regulates master clock in the brain. It's the master clock called the suprachiasmatic nuclei, or the SCN, sends out a signal and then imposes um, rhythmicity on all of the organ and cellular systems of the body. But we got that wrong. And I remember being at the meeting where a chap called Uli Schibler presented the data for the first time that basically all clocks have, I'm sorry, basically all cells have their own clock. And there was almost like a disaudible gasp that went around the room because it because it changed our view of circadian systems. It wasn't the clock any longer. It was the circadian system where this hierarchy of, of, of time uh, within 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 the body. And of course, part of disease and 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 in fact, um, night shift work is what's called internal desynchrony, where the clock the master clock in the brain is at one one time, the 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 the, the gut, the liver, the muscles are, are, are at another. And that explains, of course, why jet lag is so grim. It's not that you're simply five hours shifted from London to New York or whatever. It's the fact that the entire system, which was previously aligned, is now all slightly at, uh, at different, working at different times. It's a bit like um, an orchestra. With all the with all the musicians playing at a slightly different time, instead of a, a beautiful, you know, symphony, you've got this cacophony. And that's what 
uh, circadian rhythm disruption in uh, you know uh, internally synchrony is all about as as typified by by jet lag which is so grim because the brain is at one time the, the gut the muscles are, are all at different times and and it's only after we experience the light dark cycle in the new time zone that we can then re realign all of these rhythms and so that they're all working together once more and in terms of that jet lag they say typically you can kind of regain about an hour a day. So if you went to seven hour, a time zone seven hours before or after, it'll take you about seven days to accommodate yeah. that. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, this is a big deal for um, athletes who travel all, all around the world. They've got to get to where they've got to go and then adapt. Not, not, only, not only the athletes, but of course, if you're riding a horse, um, all the equestrian events, you've got to let the, the, the horses adapt too. So they have to go in well in advance to um, uh, settle in to get their clocks working optimally as well. And is that something that's been applied? Like, in Because obviously, you know, when you look at the likes of uh, Usain Bolt or people like this, like super peak performing athletes, you know, certainly I've heard him say that he said sleep was one of the reasons which gave him the edge. And obviously there's a huge genetic predisposition to be an incredible runner. But obviously sleep is being heralded as a superfood for athletes. And do you see that reflected now in events? Like, because obviously if there's an event in Australia and then the next, you know, three days later, there's an event in California or in China or London, there's obviously going to be huge time zones differences. Are, is that being factored into across mainstream kind of events or is this not really my, at all? No, my understanding is that they are aware of this and 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 give enough time for people to adapt. I mean, it's really interesting that, of course, in terms of muscle performance and muscle strength, we're at our peak um, in the late afternoon, early evening. And people who organize these events know this. And so they always have the finals where they're most likely to break the records in the late afternoon or the early evening, which is when the athletes are able to perform best. That's generally speaking. There is one study, which I think is really, really interesting, which looked at different athletes, morning types, intermediate types and evening types, uh, and, and asked whether their athletic performance changed. And whilst the morning, sorry, the mid to, to late types are always peaking in the, in the afternoon, early evening, the morning types, the, the sort of extreme morning types were peaking at 12 noon. So in fact, an early chronotype, a lark, would be penalized in a sense in those in those um, in those performances. So part of the right stuff would be a late body clock. Wow, that's really interesting. It's, it's, like and yes, and it's really tough for swimmers, of course, because what happens with swimmers um, when the pool's empty in the morning? You know, they're getting up at five o'clock, going to the pool to do their training, um, but then their ability to perform best will be in the late afternoon, early evening. So you've got this real tension where, where kids who are really struggling to get up in the morning, to get into the pool, to do their training, um, actually will achieve much better later in the day. So we're almost selecting against the ones that would do uh, uh, better later in the day. So it's a real difficult, real difficulty for swimmers, actually. That's, that's an amazing one. So in terms of like circadian rhythm and peak performance, if you want to set a world record or personal best or any kind of thing, typically the, for the average person, it'll be late afternoon or evening. And is that for, yeah. say, for example, someone going to the gym and someone wants to get a bit stronger or get, you know, obviously most people, most of us are not world-class athletes, uh, for anyone listening, excuse me. But, um, 
if you, for peak performance, it's really late afternoon or evening, unless you're an extreme early bird, like we're definitely extreme early birds, that that would be more likely noon would be the best time for... Yeah, it's, yeah many people ask about when's the best time to exercise, and it, de- and it depends like everything else. If you want to burn fat, then the argument is to do your exercise first thing in the morning before breakfast, because you're still in the sort of sleep metabolic um, mode, whereby you're mobilizing stored fat to burn, to sort of stay alive whilst you're asleep. Um, So like you two who are morning types, you could burn more calories, more fat by exercising first thing in the morning. However, somebody who's a later type uh, who can't get out early in the morning um, would be not great at doing that. But what they can do, of course, is exercise later in the day. And because muscular efficiency is more effective, uh, so they can they can exercise with greater strength and for longer later in the day, that's when they will burn their calories uh, that they've consumed during the day. So, yeah, it depends on what chronotype you are, uh, depends upon when you should best exercise and what you want to achieve. If you want to achieve sort of fat burn, then it's before breakfast. Um, if it's calorie burn that you've taken in during the day that could then be turned into fat, then exercise um, uh, later in the day, afternoon, early evening. So chronotype really does have an impact on all aspects of our life massively. Like it's almost like a predisposition that it's hard to move beyond it. It's almost like parameters that are are almost biologically hardwired into us that like yeah. you're predisposed to be a morning person and that is the way you're made. And And the big question is why? Why are humans so different from most other animals? Why do we have such a very broad chronotype? There are people, you know, who could share beds. You know, one's getting up while one is going, going, going to bed. And one argument is that it was an advantage in our sort of tribal societies, which is not that long ago, to have vigilance across the night. So there'd be somebody alert, making sure that there wouldn't be, I don't know, some animal or some other invader. Um, uh, uh, attacking you. I I had another explanation for why you have that diversity, which is fire. In early communities, fire was a great killer. And if there's somebody around um, to to detect that there was a fire, um, to alert the rest of the group. So for us, it might have been a huge advantage to have that, that difference across the group. That makes a lot of and, sense. And a huge, uh, can I have a question that I'm, uh, I'm peppering to ask? Just on this, just this on this topic. No, 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 oh, please. No, no, this one I'm really excited because this is something <laughs> that I think about every summer as it starts. Because as I said, I follow the sunrise every day and it changes throughout the year. And in my mind, I kind of go, well, I wonder as humans, are we predisposed to require the amount of sleep in respect to the amount of light? We live in the Northern Hemisphere in Ireland here. You know, that's we're just slightly south of Dublin in summer typically they might be dark for about six hours and in winter it's dark for about almost 18 hours yeah does that like evolutionary speak to just to say someone who grew up in the northern hemisphere around this latitude would mean that in winter it would be appropriate to sleep 18 hours or 16 hours somewhere around that and in summer six hours would suffice to have to keep them biologically active for this time frame so yeah. Anyway, sorry. That, yeah, that's... there's certainly evidence that um, in in you know when we were all agricultural workers, we, our sleep patterns were very much influenced by 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 the seasons and the expanding and contracting uh, night length. 
So during winter, sleep expanded and during summer, sleep contracted. Uh, those differences are not so obvious in our modern society where, of course, we have electric lighting and, and, and heating and, and all the rest of it. Uh, but there's, it's very clear that we, we did follow um, those sorts of uh, ancient light dark cycle patterns that influenced our sleep patterns yeah because yeah, i find sleep, much sleep has been hugely dynamic like it's really not like because some people who i've read in terms of sleep it's very prescriptive and very dogmatic and very kind of one size fits all whereas yeah. your message is far more you know it's very digestible in that it's very case specific and it's very evolving and dynamic which i think is so yeah inclusive I mean, yeah it really is it's so much it's easier beautiful to- <laughs> well, thank it. you. That's really kind because one of the reasons I wrote Lifetime is is because I wanted to get this 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 message out that that you know people have become much more aware of sleep and then become terrified that they're not getting the sleep that they're supposed to have. I mean, just before lockdown, I gave a talk and somebody came up to me and said, "I don't get eight hours of sleep a night. Am I going to die?" And I said, "Well, I can guarantee that you'll die." But it may have absolutely nothing to do with the fact that, you're, you know, you don't get eight hours of sleep. And so I think we've got to sort of get rid of this anxiety that has brewed up around sleep and embrace the sleep that we get. I mean, when you talk to sort of the elderly, they say, oh, I wish I could have the sleep that I had when I was 30. Well, you won't. But actually, given the fact that you're now retired, you don't have all the responsibility of kids or jobs. You can then get the sleep that you want. And I now I know several individuals, um, family members, in fact, who said they've never slept better in their life. It's different from the sleep that they had 20, 30 years ago. But, you know, um, and in fact, one family member, we're told very, very clearly, do not call before 11 o'clock. And they're sort of, you know, their their breakfast is now brunch, which is, I just think, brilliant. Um, uh, and as long as, as as your sleep patterns don't affect your ability to function during the day, that's the key thing. It's this sort of yin and yang, these two things interacting uh, optimally together. And what about what about over the life cycle? Because when I think about when I look at you know, friends or some women in my life, typically like my mom or my wife or, you know, other family members, typically women, they typically have more issues. Like when I look at mom, she's always had issues around sleep. She's found it particularly since having us, she's found she's struggled a lot more with sleep than dad has. And I see the same with myself, my wife, Sabrina, she kind of struggles a little more at sleep than me. She kind of gets, you know, it affects her a lot more and she thinks more about it. And I just wondered in terms of like man and woman and are there various issues? Because obviously there's hormonal differences, huge ones, particularly around childbearing areas and post having kids and all these type of things. And is that an issue? And how can people deal with that? I think it's an incredibly important point. And it's worth emphasizing that most studies, circadian studies and sleep studies, have been on basically um, male university students in the early 20s. We haven't studied women very much because of the changes in the hormonal cycles will influence the sleep-wake cycle and the body clock, and that makes the data messier. Um, And it's about time we started looking at some of these issues really seriously. So, for example, the changes that occur in the hormones over the menstrual cycle do unquestionably have an important impact upon the sort of quality of sleep that individuals would get, and in terms of mood as well. I mean, you know, you've got that premenstrual 
a time when there's low progesterone, low estrogen, um, where there's a greater chance of becoming irritable and depressed. And these are real phenomena and it will impact upon the body clock and sleep-wake timing. And so we don't fully understand what's going on, but we do know that there's an impact. Um, and of course, it, during the menopause and the pre-menopause, with all the changes in, in hormonal levels, that's known to interact with aspects of the sleep system, which will alter sleep, not least, of course, the night sweats, um, which, of, which of course disrupt sleep hugely for those individuals. What can we do about night sweats? Well, do you know, you're, there's not much. I mean, it's basically get a decent fan, um, which isn't particularly helpful, but, but that's where we are with those sorts of sex differences. The other interesting issue is that women tend to be more morning types than men. So men tend to be later types and for longer uh, than women. So there's, there's a slight mismatch. By the time we're in, a, again, our mid to late 50s, men and women are getting up and going to bed at about the same time. But throughout most of their life, they would on average be different. Men on average being later, women on average being earlier. Yeah, that was a question I was peppering to ask because I see it in my relationship and I see it in lots of other relationships, which is such a basic thing, which you don't typically talk about when you're dating. But when you start living together, when you get married, you start realizing when things, when the dust kind of settles in a relationship and the kind of honeymoon period is over, typically people kind of start go falling more to their natural chronotypes. And I found certainly that like, for example, in my relationship, I typically go to bed around nine, half nine, whereas Sabrina is much more like 11. Like that's her kind of natural time. If I'm not around, she'll go to bed around 11. But then we have to find some sweet spot and I've got to kind of stay up a little later and she's got to come to bed a little earlier. And that might only happen a couple of times a week. Whereas the other times, like there might be a bit of difference and then she'll come in later. And I just wondered, is that, that's probably the reality for a lot of relationships out there. Is that what you... Yes. Yeah, and in fact, there's some data, it's not great, but it's but I'll mention it anyway, because it's quite fun, is that the best surviving relationships are between um, morning types and evening types, um, you know, where there's a mismatch. And so the cynical explanation- Is that because they see last time of each other? other (laughs) (laughs) But the explanation I prefer is that if you can adapt to the sleeping habits of your partner, it shows you've got the flexibility and the mindset to make a long-term relationship work. And I kind of like that. You're um, such a romantic, Russell. I love it. I'm, yeah, I know. Maybe I'm being, a, I, my, my critical scientific brain has been polluted by romance. Yes, it's very possible. Um, right, but I, I believe I'm with you. I'm 100% And what about yourself? That. You mentioned your wife is a literary person. Do you find, do you have the same chronotype or what do you? No, we don't. Um, I, I was much more of a late type and Lizzie was a much more morning type. And of course, we've changed. And interestingly, just as the data show, we've kind of, I've become more of a morning type and, and she's sort of become a little bit later. So we're, 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 we're similar. Yeah. You're nearly but, neck and neck now. Well, you're kind of. In fact, she says, you know, we'll be chit-chatting away in, in, you know, in the sitting room. And she says, I can't believe it's quarter to 11. You keep me up every night. And I could get the blame for it. But actually, she, she's perfectly able to function at that time nowadays. She couldn't have done once. I mean, Boy, she was she was happy to be off to bed nine, you know, nine thirty, um, and it's now drifted later. The other thing, though, that couples face, particularly as they age, is um, one of the partners may snore, and this is this is really tricky because um, you know the advice is well, you use earplugs or something like that. Um, many people can't cope with earplugs, and so what I think you should think about is 
sleeping in separate spaces, um, separate bedrooms. But when you propose this to people, you know, in their 60s or 70s, they think this is terrible. This is a reflection on a breakdown of a relationship, you know, because couples are supposed to stay in the same bed. Well, actually, no. And my argument would be, well, um, you know, go somewhere else, get a good night's sleep, because then the time you have together during the day, you'll be more empathetic, you'll have a better sense of humor, you'll get on better. And, and so, you know, it's optimizing sleep to optimize your daily interactions that are the most important, not the fact that you're suffering uh, with a partner snoring. Um, so, yeah, I think that, and of course, you know, the old the aristocrats traditionally slept apart. It was, you know, um, uh, they always had separate chambers. Now, there's various explanations why that may be, but they invariably got a better night's sleep. <clears throat> That's wow. interesting. And even on that one, I know, because we've talked to other breathwork people, breathing experts, and they've kind of suggested in terms of snoring that to tape your mouth so that you breathe through your nose because, you know, <laughs> snoring is obviously, and sleep apnea can very be correlated to breathing through your mouth, which yeah. can... Not I would argue, bro- yeah, don't do that. I mean, if you've, if, if you've got obstructive sleep apnea where the musculature of the throat essentially closes the airway, so, so your partner will hear some snoring, uh, as they breathe, and then they'll stop breathing for you know a, a, an extended period of time, you know, seconds to half thirty seconds or so, and then they'll wake up because the brain will detect it's being deprived of oxygen, and you have this huge, great sort of intake of breath. Now that um, obstructive sleep apnea and these surges in blood pressure are associated with a range of health conditions. So obstructive sleep apnea is associated with a high frequency of um, uh, of stroke and heart attacks. And indeed, if you combine it with um, diabetes too, then damage to the fine vasculature of the eye. So it's something that, that really must be taken seriously and must be sorted out. And it's easy. Um, uh, the respiratory sleep biologists, and physicians have worked it all out. And you use one of these things, CPAP, which is essentially air being pushed uh, into the nose and mouth It takes a bit of time to get used to it, but it works in 95% of people who've tried it. It actually cures the problem. So, yeah, do take it seriously, though. Don't ignore it. Good In terms of sleep tracking, Russell, because, uh, you know, Uh, nowadays uh, with with modern technical advances, I believe we've become dumber. I'm wearing one right now and I'm going, wow, this thing tracks my But even last night, talk about last night. Yeah, yeah, even last night, I took it off to charge it because I knew I was going running this morning. I just, sometimes maybe the male ego me likes to see, look how far I've done today. Yay. And um, I took it off to charge it for, you know, while I was asleep. And I got up in the middle of the night to go to the toilet and thought, oh, sure, I'll put it back on. And went to the toilet and came back and went to bed and probably only had about five hours sleep with this on. I was probably in bed for about eight hours. Woke up this morning and said, geez, I got a sleep score of 80. How cool. Even though it was only on for five hours. So it kind of reminded me that it's not necessarily that accurate. Um, And I think I've heard you talk about where it's kind of algorithmically um, designed that it's not necessarily that accurate at all. And part of me, my question is, these things often dumb us down that make us disconnect from our natural, you know, information system that we're getting in, almost that we start to question ourselves. Why do we need a sleep tracker to tell us we've had a good night's sleep or not? We know whether we've had a good night's sleep or not. Um, and it's and, and I, I get a bit irritated with these devices. Let, let's let's first of all say why they could be useful. I mean, where they are accurate in that they can roughly tell you when you went to sleep, how many times you woke up in the night and when you finally got out of bed in the morning. So 
that can be useful if you want to change your sleep habits. It's rather like um, if you want to lose weight, you change your eating behavior, you weigh yourself in the morning um, and you see there's a loss of weight. And that reinforces the fact that you should you know, keep on going with that change behavior. And so if you want to get longer sleep or change your timing of sleep, then a change behavior could be um, uh, reflected in your in your sleep tracker where they are are, are largely useless is in detecting REM versus non-REM sleep. And you'll see reports like you had a great night's sleep or you had a terrible night's sleep. And they are, they're deeply flawed. One algorithm does not fit all. You know, it goes back to, how, you know, we know sleep is so diverse. So how can you expect one algorithm to, to, to extract um, what's good sleep and what's bad sleep? None of the sleep trackers currently endorsed by the sleep societies or the sleep federations, none are FDA, um, you know, the American sort of um, Federal Drug Administration, and none of those are approved. So don't take them too seriously. And lots of people do get very anxious. I mean, one chap um, I've spoken to a few years ago now, and he said, I'm so worried I'm not getting enough REM sleep. I set my alarm clock for four o'clock in the morning to wake myself up to check how much REM sleep I've had. Now that's just complete nonsense, but it gives you a sense of the anxiety that these things um, can generate. So, you know, I think they're using your, your phone as a step counter or rough levels of activity that can be useful. Um, and roughly when you went to bed and when you, when you got up, that's all useful and it's fine. But anything more sophisticated is just not reliably detected by these devices. At the moment, things may change. But I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend a good friend of mine, Ken Wright, who's um, uh, a, a professor at the um, uh, University of Colorado. He he has a big class, a big sleep class. Um, and, and he asks the students who here has had a sleep tracker of some sort. And, you know, all the hands go up. And he then says, now, who are using them routinely now? And about three hands go up. You know, these are smart kids. They realize that they're unreliable. They what's what's the point of them? Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm pretty down on them, I have to say. I mean, that, no, was, that was our experience. We got them at the start of the year and we were super into them for the first month and probably did get a little bit anxious. I was tracking the, the REM and like, yeah. oh, my God, I didn't get as much REM and looking for patterns <laughs> yeah. or whatever. And I did find I was a little bit anxious. And then we'd both every day being competitive, go, what was your sleep score today and whatever. And, yeah. But then after about a month, I realized, oh, my God, this thing is just kind of stressing me out a bit. And I really haven't given it a look in a long time now. So, yeah, I think they, they rely very much upon one off sales. But but basically, then they end up in the draw after one or six or 12 months. I, I'd be very interested to, to know what your 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 listeners, you know, their experience with sleep trackers and how many are still using them after, let's say, 12, 18 months. I think mm. your message is really democratic and really inclusive like it's really supportive hearing your message makes me just go like it's so what you're saying is so intelligent and it's just so accessible common and common sense which is really not very common these days well i hope my children listen to this <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's a tough one and, and even so, so your book lifetime it came out in may and it's been a really it's it's been very very well received and it's been out, obviously, a number of months. And I wondered, what are the main kind of things that people are coming to you going, that bit blew my mind or this bit? What were the big kind of nuggets that probably surprised you? Yeah, 
I mean, I think the general realization of how important biological time is. But one of the things that I was really, really sort of firm about, or I didn't, but I didn't have to be, was that you'll notice there are over 900 references. Now, I think it's 920 references, because every bit of science, largely every bit of science, has a paper that's associated with it. And Penguin didn't kick back at all about, they didn't even mention the fact that, you know, sort of a big chunk of the book was references. And my logic was, I want to make this information as accessible as possible, but I want people to go and uh, through, um, you know, the fact that there's open access, you can get all of these references largely. Um, they're all in the public domain. So people can check out how good the facts, the, the reported facts are. And a great illustration of that was, uh, a lady sent me an email and she said, um, oh, I was really interested to see that if you take your antihypertensives um, before uh, bedtime rather than first thing in the morning, you can halve your chances of having a stroke. I mean, that's just phenomenal. Same drug, different time, big effect upon long term health. And she said, I mentioned this to my husband and he said, oh, for goodness sake, it, it doesn't matter. She said, well, check out the reference. He checked out the reference and he came back and said, oh, my God, you're right. You know the data are very clear, and I and I and I think by empowering the readership, should they want it, then you 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 essentially add another dimension to yeah this is interesting stuff, but oh you know I can I can check how how it, how, how good this data is, and then that will lead me to other things as well. So it's opening up you know the entire box of sleep and circadian rhythm uh, science to the gen reader. So that, I, I was really excited to be able to do that. And I, and I have to say, working with Penguin was really good because I'm a scientist. I, I, I write naturally, more formally. And, and they would say to me things like, oh, we want to hear your voice. And, 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 and you know, it's OK to throw the odd anecdote in. And so um, I felt liberated to become a bit more relaxed and less, not, not less scientific in terms of the rigor. I wanted the rigor to be there, but the language is hopefully more accessible. And so that's been an interesting learning experience for me um, and actually made it fun. Um, yeah, uh, cer certainly it's, as Stephen said, like it really is digestible and applicable that it's not a one size fits all message because certainly I've read other sleep books and done courses on it and I found it kind of stressful because it was very prescriptive and very kind of, oh my goodness, I've been doing it wrong my whole life. This is so stressful and I've got to remember these 10 things before bed and oh, and it was kind of a bit like it was overwhelming. Whereas yeah. your message is like, you know, get back to basics. Don't, you know, it's, it's not, it's not, it's not extreme extremities. It's not a one size fits all. It's very case specific. Your chronotype. So whether you're a morning bird, uh, somewhere in the middle or a night owl is super relevant and super important. And there's so many other factors about that. Uh, Russell, I wonder if we could talk about sleep and mental health, because there's a huge correlation oh, yeah. between sleep and mental health. And it's something like nowadays we're living through a bit of a mental health. I shouldn't say ep epidemic. It's always been there, but now it's a lot more socially acceptable to talk about and discuss our issues, our challenges and our mental health. I wonder if you could talk about the relationship between sleep and mental health. And well, circadian rhythm, because I guess it's yeah. not just sleep. It's because like what, what I've understood so far is that our circadian rhythm predicates our sleep. And if our circadian rhythm is out and our sleep is out, there's a high probability that it will have knock on yeah. effects in every aspect of our health. Well, I got into this area of, 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 of disrupted sleep and circadian rhythms and mental health almost by accident. I was in a, in a lift in one of the hospitals in London and a psychiatrist who, was, who I sort of kind of vaguely knew said to me, oh, you work on 
on on sleep and stuff, don't you? And I said, yeah, yeah, you know. And he said, oh, well, of course, all my patients with schizophrenia have terrible sleep. That's because they don't have a job. So they go to bed late, miss my uh, miss my cl clinic, don't have friends and, you know, become socially isolated. And I thought, well, actually, that sounds like rubbish to me. So then worked with other psychiatrists and we measured the rest activity profiles and, and a bunch of other stuff um, in patients with schizophrenia. And I was I'm still completely gobsmacked at what we found, which was that the these rhythms are not just bad. They are utterly smashed. There are some individuals with no 24 hour patterns at all. It's as if somebody has lesioned their master clock in the brain. Some of them are drifting through time. Some of them are massively fragmented. Some are, bottom line is they're completely shot. And I I just was puzzled about, oh, and, it, and, and, and individuals, we, we looked at unemployed individuals and people with, with, with drugs and without drugs. And, and actually it wasn't due to the unemployment, unemployed sleep wake patterns a little bit later, but they're not smashed like those individuals with schizophrenia. Um, and and, and can, can, I, can I ask yeah. one question just, just in there? So, so for optimal yeah. health, really, we should have good routines in terms of our sleep-wake cycle. Like that's the kind of optimum. Y yeah, that, that's right. But, but we then started thinking about, well, what's this connection? Why do you always find this connection between disrupted sleep and mental health? And that built a model, which was that um, because the sleep and circadian systems draw from all the brain neurotransmitter systems and multiple brain structures. At some level, the sleep systems and the mental health systems will overlap within the brain. So if there's a change in a pattern of neurotransmitter, brain neurotransmitter, that predisposes you to a mental health state, it's gonna have an impact upon sleep at some level. And what we were able to do is link genes that have been linked to the clock and sleep to mental health, and genes that have been originally linked to mental health were linked to the clock and sleep system. So there was empirical evidence for that mechanistic overlap within the brain. You know, so there is a hereditary element to developing um, uh, mental health conditions um, and, and in parallel with sleep problems. But that's, it's, that's just the, 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 the beginning. Because of course, the disrupted sleep and circadian rhythms, because it has such a distorting effect upon physiology and behavior, will exacerbate the mental health status and the mental health status will exacerbate the sleep-wake problems. So you can then rapidly go from a, sort of a, an association at the heart of the system to an ever increasing feedback loop, which changes um, you know, a, a mild state into a much, much, much worse state. And so we thought, well, okay, if that's the case, then, then we can think of the sleep systems as a potential therapeutic target. If we can partially stabilize sleep-wake systems, we should be able to reduce the severity of mental health. And working with my friends in psychiatry in Oxford, and notably Dan Freeman, we were able to do that. People showing hallucinatory, experience, uh, hallucinatory experiences and paranoia uh, with insomnia, we were able to reduce the insomnia and reduce the paranoia and hallucinatory experiences, showing that intimate relationship between the two. And the exciting thing is we don't have much in our arsenal to deal with mental health other than, 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 than sort of a bunch of, of, of drugs which sometimes work and sometimes don't. Um, but if we can think of stabilizing the sleep-wake systems, we've got a new way to uh, attack 
some of the problems associated with mental health problems. And by the way, um, other studies that we've done, Guy Goodwin, for example, have shown that the kids at high risk of bipolar versus low risk of developing bipolar, they, they have a disrupted sleep-wake pattern before any clinical diagnosis of bipolar. So the fantasy would be you identify those kids at high risk, you stabilize their sleep in early development or you know, in their teens. Do you then set the brain into a different developmental trajectory, delaying the onset of conditions like bipolar or knocking it into another trajectory where it's never developed? So I think paying attention to the sleep-wake systems and sleep and circadian systems in mental health over the coming decades could yield incredibly uh, important benefits. That's amazing. It's such a beautiful holistic approach because not only does it benefit your your sleep or your mental health, it benefits your ability to be empathetic, your ability to function, your ability to relate to others, your ability to spend time outside and be included in a society, which all affects our mental health. And I wondered when you were dealing with those schizophrenic people that had kind of distorted wake and sleep cycles, like what were the basic principles? Like for anyone listening who goes, okay, maybe my sleep habits aren't the best and maybe I could do it locking down a serious routine with it. That's that's in sync with my chronotype. What were the basic things that you kind of said to, to try to regulate these people that had abnormal sleep cycles? Well, these individuals had a, 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 a digital cognitive behavioral therapy program for insomnia. So they were actually interacting with an app on their smartphone. Um, but you don't necessarily need an app. It can be very useful. But, but there are lots of things that we can do. Morning light, setting the clock. Um, try not to nap at the wrong time, get out, exercise, um, but not too close to bedtime, um, ex avoid excessive caffeine consumption, don't use sedatives uh, unless you can avoid it, and if you do use them, use it short term, I mean, they are sedatives, they do not provide a biological mimic for sleep, do not try and sedate yourself with alcohol to try and get to sleep at night, um, think about when you have those difficult discussions, you know, so many couples only have the chance to really talk about serious stuff before they go to sleep. That's the worst time. It's anxiety generating. And I should say, most people don't have a sleep problem. They have an anxiety problem. So finding ways to reduce anxiety and stress is one of the key ways in which you can, which you can um, uh, uh, improve your, your, your sleep. Bedroom, you know, it should be quiet, ideally, uh, dark shouldn't be too warm, remove all of those distractions like TVs and computer screens and all the rest of it. We've talked about not clock watching, um, not taking apps too seriously, um, keeping a routine. Um, we're kind of cheap when it comes to beds and pillows. You know, 30% of our lives will be spent in bed. And yet we don't really want to, we, there's something in us, there's something in me that doesn't want to spend a lot of money on a good bed. So get out there, try the beds out, speak to friends, you know, about pillows and just make sure you are wrapped up in this wonderful sort of marshmallow embracing uh, bed uh, that works for you. Bedside lights low because the greater the light, the greater the alerting effect it will have. We talked about earplugs and snoring partners. Um, and also we talked about uh, if you wake in the middle of the night, stay calm. Don't worry about it. So it's kind of common sense stuff. All, all, you know, laid out in lifetime with explanations um, that we can we can take control ourselves of of this of a third of our behavior and a third of our behavior, which defines 
our ability to function during the day. Amazing. What a list. That's incredible. Last, last one, and it might have a PPS to it, is you said there about napping, not napping at the wrong, oh, wrong time. Yeah. I love napping. I'm a devil for it. I could lie on the floor there and just fall asleep, typically before 2 p.m. And you can fall asleep anywhere, in an airport, I, I at the middle of a festival could, on the field. I can do it anywhere. So I just wondered when you said wrong napping and right napping, yeah. what is kind of what is the it's kind of common sense around napping? Really important. So um, the data suggests that a 20-minute nap um, uh, uh, in the early afternoon can make your ability to function in the second half of the day better. Um, but longer naps can, can make you go into deeper sleep and um, therefore recovering from that, it makes you sluggish and actually can be completely counterproductive. Where napping is a problem, and we see it in, in adolescents, for example, is that they're going to sleep late because of a whole variety, you know, they're biologically programmed to go to bed late, then social media kicks in, they're going to sleep even later. So the alarm clock drags them out of bed. They're tired. Some kids are actually falling asleep at their desks during the day. They struggle through the day. They then get home and then three, four, five o'clock in the afternoon, they'll sleep for two hours. And what that does is push back the sleep pressure, which means it's more difficult to get to sleep that night. So shorten sleep, a greater and and you can fall into this this cycle of shortened nighttime sleep and longer daytime naps and that for teenagers of course is a problem because it doesn't um, fit with the societal demands of education and all the other stuff that we heap onto our youngsters. Now, if you are retired, then it doesn't matter so much. Um, but I think as an adolescent, uh, you need to be aware that you have to find the sleep pattern that clearly works for you but that can also accommodate your educational uh, needs and demands. Beautiful. Russell, you're absolutely I love it. brilliant. So think. 20 minutes typically before 2 p.m. because you don't yeah. want to you don't want to clear out the adenosine, which is a sleep pressure. You don't want to yeah. kind of reset so, so you can actually fall asleep well in the evening. That's right. I mean, adenosine, of course, is one of those uh, elements that builds up while we're awake and is part of the trigger of, of, of sleep pressure. And that's why caffeine works, because what caffeine does is block the brain receptors that detect adenosine. So the brain thinks it's far less tired than it is. Problem is, when those receptors are cleared, the adenosine floods in and you can go into a massive sleep crash. And that's why it's so important that if you're using coffee to keep you awake as you're you know, on those long drives on the motorways, sure, you'll feel fine uh, for a short time. Uh, but then uh, there's a danger of uncontrollably falling asleep. And, you know, it's serious. In the States, 100,000 crashes um, uh, on the freeway uh, have been have been linked to uh, microseeps is falling asleep. Um, and the American Automobile Association, I think, say it's probably closer to 300,000 um, uh, crashes uh, due to sleepiness. So you have to have to be careful. But yeah, adenosine is a is a molecule I'm studying with my friends and colleagues in the lab um, quite extensively, and it's turning out to provide some really cool findings. Brilliant, I Russell! Love it. You are just you're deadly, you're wonderful. 
You're like, absolutely wonderful. I really love chatting to you. And I love, I love just your, you're so animated and you're so into this. It's but beautiful. It's, it's wisdom. <laughs> wisdom is being able to distill a practical message that is not too convoluted or too complex. So I think it takes serious time and expertise to be able to deliver something that is very applicable and useful for people, you know, and being able to explain complex stuff. Because having written more than a hundred scientific papers in terms of circadian rhythms and sleep and whatnot is probably not simple but you're able to give a simple message that us as lay people can really understand so thank you well thank you but you guys have made it incredibly easy i've really enjoyed this this discussion it's been a lot of fun oh thanks and your book uh, lifetime is with penguin life which we're also published with ah yes yes they told me yeah and i've just really enjoyed working with them um and so uh yeah, it's it's been a it's been a great it's great a great experience. As I said, I thought that I would be controlled and you know all the rest of it, but they haven't. They've given me lots of constructive advice. They haven't kicked back on 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 the rigor of the science at all. So I I really appreciated it, and um, I might even write another. You know, <laughs> go Russell. So it's very nurturing. I think publishing publishing is typically female led, but it's so nurturing and supportive is what we found working with Penguin mm. Life. Yeah. yeah, yeah, really. Yeah. And it was certainly our editor in Penguin Life. Um, she put us said just how incredible you were that you were one of the. You, she found you so inspiring. So we, that was really what catalyzed well, that's, this that's conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's weird. It's taken me completely outside my comfort zone. You know, I work in the lab. You know, and uh, so so the chance of doing this was 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 wonderful, wonderful, yeah, quite liberating. A, yeah, you're a natural though. You're a total natural. Yeah. yeah. Thanks so much, Ross. I really appreciate you taking the time. And this will probably go up in a few weeks. Okay, well, thanks so much. And uh, if you're ever coming via Oxford, let's get together for a cup of coffee um, uh, or or lunch or dinner or whatever. I'd love to. And likewise, if you're ever in Ireland, we swim in the sea every day at sunrise so it can set your... Do you ever come to Ireland? Do you ever come to Ireland? Yes, well, I've been... Last time was before lockdown. I went to um, a county Cork, um, University of of, of Cork. And it was wonderful because when I was... um, much younger, I used to do scuba diving, and we used to go to Loch Ayn and and Skibbery, near Skibbereen and do um, some lot of scuba diving because you know part of my zoological roots. And I had some of the best diving I- in that loch, and so love and knew, got to know that part of Ireland. And then later, I've been to Dublin a few times and uh, uh, at the uh, the science museum there and uh, go, given some talks. So no, every opportunity. So uh, it'd be fun. Fun to visit you. Brilliant. Cool. Brilliant. Well, we'll stay in touch. And if we are coming to Oxford, I will send you an email. Please do. That would be fun. All right. Wonderful. Great chatting to you yeah. too. Thanks, Thanks a million. Bye Mind yourself. Bye. 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 Russell was brilliant. I really found that he had that wisdom where he was able to distill a message and make it a practical. And certainly for me personally, I was grateful that he validated my napping. Make sure that it's less than 20 minutes and before 2 p.m. That was a rule which I typically heard before and it was great to hear him succinct with that. A couple of things which I, takeaways I got. I loved the idea of you know, living without an alarm clock because that's something which I've done and trying to be more in tune of our sleeping. It's not a prescriptive thing. We have an anxiety issue and not a sleep issue. It's about managing how we deal with our own stresses and our emotions is such a massive component in terms of sleeping well and that it is not prescriptive. We do not need sleep in an eight hour chunk. It can be, we can be by by phasal or polyphasal meaning you could try first sleep or your second time and the best time to have sex traditionally was between the first sleep and your second that was according to some french philosophers so anyway i found russell really refreshing and really enlightening so i really hope you found something good out of this 
And his book Lifetime is out. It's a pretty cool book, dude. Yeah, it really is. And in terms of chronotype, if you're wondering what type your chronotype is, there's questionnaires online which you can figure it out. Generally, most people have a fair idea and the questionnaire just really validates it. But it is a great lens to look at yourself in terms of you might be a square peg in terms of a round hole, in terms of society is set up more for early morning birds. If you're a night owl and you're forced to work between 8 and 5 p.m., you might work much better in the evening. So by understanding which type your chronotype is, it might be enlightening it might be reflected that you can talk to someone within your team and go hey i prefer to work later in the day because that's typically where i'm best and i think that's a really practical solution to many issues yeah and also even for people who are night shift workers typically they should be people who are naturally night people so just minimize the risk in terms of their overall health anyway we're waffling hope you really enjoyed this uh thank you for listening wishing you a wonderful present moment and uh yeah thanks for your attention we're most grateful with it with love respect and uh, gratitude We say goodbye. Bye-bye, 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 bye-bye.